This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. Um, I'm not in my booth if I sound a little bit different. I'm by an open window because we're talking on a hot day. Although I've got sunshine and Kate has rain, don't you? Well, I've had a bit of a nightmare while we've been just recording with James. I've had my husband decided to put some pictures on the wall and was banging with a hammer. I then had water coming through the ceiling in my office. Oh, drastic here. I, I know. And then it's absolutely poured a rain outside and it was glorious sunshine five Rubbish. minutes ago. Not good. Mm. Well, I seem to have, I seem to live on the kind of road that is just back from a main road where people use it as a cut through. And especially if they've put a dump valve or something on their car. So if you hear it go by, that's because I've got my window open. A rat run is what we always call it. Yeah, it's a bit of that. Nice. Don't think I'll use that term. Apart from that, though, have you been enjoying the uh, the good weather we've been having? I have. I've had breakfast outside every morning. I've been going outside in between patients, which has been lovely. I did my yoga outside this morning by my sweet pea arch. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it, and now I'm not happy that it's raining. Oh, I did my yoga outside this morning. I've got a, mm. a guy helping me in the garden today, hacking away at the ivy that we've got, so I didn't have my lunch mm. in the garden because I felt a bit like bad going nom 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 you're working nom 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 yeah 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 right you'll know from last week's episode if you have been listening in order that we were really keen to ask you to get in touch with us and thank you for those of you that have and if you haven't listened please go back and listen because we still want you to get in touch with us and what we were saying is that as we're kind of carrying on on this journey we're like mapping out these different steps and we wanted to talk about the postcode lottery in today's episode to just explain a bit about what it is now we're not experts on the topic which is why we've asked a couple of other people to come and talk to us about it what we do know though is how unfair it is and how frustrating it is for you and it's still going on the fact that there isn't equal access to fertility treatment across the UK it's ridiculous and in light of what's happened with the pandemic we know that it's put even more time pressures on you and if you listen to our episode we had maybe about a month ago now with Zainab Girton she'd done this research looking at the impact of halting fertility treatment on your emotional well-being and how it had such a big effect that we still don't really know the long-term repercussions of that so got a lot to answer for hasn't it this postcode lottery as well as the pandemic it has and I kind of dream of a time when there is no postcode lottery and that IVF is an option for everyone regardless of where you live because the frustrating thing is you can live in one county and have access to three IVF treatments live in the next county and have none or you can live on the border and have nothing or three or whatever so it can be three it can be two it can be one it can be none um and it's so very unfair because of course when you when you get married fall in love get married buy a house you don't think oh I need to buy one where the postcode lottery isn't going to impact me or should you should we be thinking like oh, that now God. imagine I mean there's enough things to think about when you're trying to just plan the next steps in your life to think oh no we can only try and get whether buy or rent a house in such and such a kind of 
area because the accessibility to fertility treatment if we might need it I mean that is just a stress beyond belief but if it is a part of your decision making then definitely let us know get in touch so as we're talking about the postcode lottery we really wanted to invite um a brilliant person that you are probably following on social media, Amber Izzo, to the podcast. Welcome, Amber. Hello. <laughs> we're talking in July and we're actually talking on a really significant day because Amber, as part of the work that she's uh, been doing, uh, launched the Fight for IVF campaign, which is all about helping you kind of understand uh, what you can do to try and get access to NHS funding in terms of speaking to your MP, your local CCG. There's a petition that Amber's running. Today is a day that what's happening Amber and then we'll go back and explain a bit more about the campaign. Today in well in about two and a half hours uh, Cambridgeshire and Peterborough CCG are reviewing their IVF policy and hopefully reinstating it she says. (laughs) I cannot tell you how delighted because as you know Amber it's my local CCG Mm -hmm. I live in Stamford so I'm bordering actually on the Peterborough and Cambridgeshire and I've got a lot of ladies who have now become friends that were in my uh fertility support group in Stanford who literally when we had the fertility support group running which we paused for COVID um found out they didn't have any funding Mm -hmm. and it was devastating so I can't tell you how delighted I am that that's happening and also to thank you hugely the bottom of my heart for all the work you've done which we're going to hear about in a minute because without you this wouldn't even be on the table and I am so grateful thank you (laughs) because I think it's such a frustration and that's to put it lightly Mm -hmm. for so many people I mean we know that Fertility Network had the whole right for try campaign a couple of years ago and the the conversation changed somewhat and there was we've spoken about it on the podcast in the past about the postcode lottery and what people could do and how Fertility Network was supporting people with templates for letters for their MPs and that type of thing. And that was probably about four years ago. So, mm-hmm. and what we've seen over time is the CCGs, you know, cutting the funding. We've heard examples. There's um, a conversation that we had previously on the podcast of somebody local to me in Manchester who actually managed to get Stockport CCG to overturn their decision. So we, we have heard positive things, but we've also heard how there's more and more. I mean, there's less NHS funding in England than there is in, in the rest of the UK, which... Mm-hmm is insane. Tell us a bit about the Fight for IVF campaign, Amber, and and what's been happening with it and how the petition's doing, which we'll put links to in the show notes as well. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I started it during Fertility Week last year. Um, I mean, that's when I officially launched it. I'd been working on it for quite some time before that. But because of where I live, we haven't been entitled to any NHS funded IVF whatsoever. Um, I think they took it off maybe six months before I was diagnosed. So it was really unfortunate timing. But it just baffled me because I think at the time, I think there were about six different CCGs that didn't offer any funding whatsoever, whereas now there's only three. It just angers me so much because quite literally, if we live 10 minutes down the road, we would be entitled to some funding. And obviously the NICE guidelines say that you should be getting three cycles and it's rare, really, I think over 80% of CCGs don't adhere to that. But like I say, here, Mid-Essex and Basildon and Brentwood, there is just no funding whatsoever. So I started the petition, I started the campaign and did a lot of work with a lot of different women who had been impacted by it. And it picked up a lot of momentum really quite quickly. And I think part of that, so my MP was, he was really involved in it and had, we'd had a conversation kind of pre-COVID um, about the situation in Cambridgeshire because I think he'd He's been very open about the fact that he had IVF to have his uh, have his daughter. So he was really on board with it. So that really helped. And yeah, the I think Sky News got it, BBC News uh, got it. And it just seemed to gain 
a lot of momentum really quickly, which was just amazing. So I think now we are on over 30,000 signatures. Um, just before Christmas, we worked with the MP, and uh, well, Peterborough MP, and we managed to get all seven MPs in Cambridgeshire to do a cross-party letter to the CCG, uh, which secured a meeting with my MP, me, and some other ladies that I'd spoken to in the area. So we had that meeting about five or six weeks ago now, um, and they've agreed to review it. And yeah, so today's meeting is the review. So we're really, really hoping that we've done enough. Um, and I think I read the report on Sunday and it was a 53-page report, so it took me a very long time to read. Kate's favourite um, type of Sunday reading. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, I've been in London for the day and I think I got back at 10 o'clock and I was like, I have to read it now, I have to yeah. read it. Um, and yeah, it, it looks really positive and I don't want to jinx it or anything, so touch wood, but it looks really positive and I think what they're proposing is one fresh cycle and two then subsequent frozen transfers so fingers crossed if if they do I think the report says that if they do agree it today then it should be reinstated for patients to start as of the 4th of August so we're really hoping just goes to show how quickly it can be reinstated Mm. when these things that take so long to be overturned and hopefully (laughs) what was it like talking you know having that meeting and talking to those NHS bosses that was terrifying yeah I I can imagine (laughs) wow yeah I was uh because I think we'd had a meeting not long before that. So um, we had one with a, just a, a councillor from Peterborough and we're talking to him about it before it went to the CCG. And yeah, it was a really, in, in, honest, in all honesty, I, I take my hat off to them for how they dealt with it. And I thought it was going to be a really terrifying meeting where they were just going to sit there and tell us why they couldn't do it and expect us to come up with a solution and things like that. So I was I was really nervous going into it. And Actually, it was it was great, and they were really open with us, and they gave us the opportunity to really share our stories and share the research that we've been doing, and they were just so empathetic. I think that's the only word, and it did fit, it did feel like they wanted to help, and it you know I don't dispute that it was a it it must be a hard decision for them to make um, as to what to fund and what not to fund, and it's certainly a job I wouldn't want to do, um, but yeah, it was. I got off that meeting and I, I did, I just, I felt really positive. Um, and then I, you know, I go through phases where I'm like, oh, what makes me think that I can do it? What, you know, and and then days like, you know, today and yesterday where I think actually we could do this and it could really change the lives of a lot of people. Well, also, because I looked at some of the survey stats that you'd shared and like I say, mm-hmm. we'll put the um, link to your Insta so people can follow the Fight for IVF campaign because I know that you're updating um, that mm-hmm. info. And when you say to people who don't quite understand the impact of infertility and you're talking about the number of people that have had suicidal thoughts or the way mm-hmm. it's impacted people's mental health and people realise how big the emotional toll of this disease, which again, that's an educational piece as well yeah. to explain people to people. I think it's it's something to be so proud of and you know you're saying who am I to do it but any any of us educating people that don't know should be proud of ourselves and I think it's so remarkable what you've done what what would you say to people listening who might have just found out or might have known for some time that they are in an area where they're not eligible in terms of being proactive and, and also try not to to kind of give up hope on what their opportunity might be I mean we know time is such an issue here Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, my advice is always to write to your MP. I think they're really useful in some ways. And I think they, like their hands are tied a little bit when it comes to the CCG, because it's not always a, a, a government thing. Um, but I think get it, 
a lot of the time people aren't even aware that this is a thing. And exactly. so I think writing to your MP, the more people that write to them, the more they are aware of the issue. Um, I would also obviously say to sign the petition and share the page and all the rest of it. But I think that's really important. And I also think when you actually read through the NICE guidelines, there's a lot of information about what the criteria should be. And quite a lot of the time people are refused funding because CCGs have put in their own criteria with things like uh, whether or not your partner has previous children, um, et cetera, et cetera. You do have grounds to appeal on that front. So you can do that. Um, it's not always successful. Um, but I do think if you can, if, if there is a loophole and you can see in the guidance that technically you should be entitled to it, appeal. Um, and I think you have to be your own biggest advocate when it comes you, to this. You're completely right. And I, I find it really frustrating that CCGs will have their own local policy. Of course, they're mm-hmm. going to. Um, but then not only that, not only so you've got the you've got the kind of like the nice guidelines, you've got CCG's local policies, but then you've got even like a smaller policy, local policy, or not even a policy, but maybe misguided information. Because I frequently see with my patients that they'll go to their GP and their GP will say, No, I'm not going to do any blood tests for you. No, I'm not going mm-hmm. to do seed analysis. You need to be trying to conceive for 12 months before I'll do any of that. Absolute rubbish. Mm-hmm. That is not policy at all yet that is almost like a local gp policy that suddenly they won't do that the only thing that they're not they're not able to do is refer to secondary care but absolutely in primary care you can have all of those things Mm -hmm. done and that's one area that just frustrates the living daylight yeah so i've um i've kind of got to a point now where i will say to people quite regularly if they um send me a message or anything they're saying you know my gp won't test for this and my gp won't test for that um, one thing I always do now is if I request something and my GP says no, I ask him to put on my records that I have asked for this and he has refused. Because um, nine times out of ten, he'll go, oh, well, I'll see what I can do. Um, because then if it does come back in six months' time, that actually I was right, um, you know, it's on, on their head. So it's I think that's, you know, not necessarily always the best way to go about it. But I think for me, it's definitely you, you have to advocate for yourself. And I you think do have to advocate for if, yourself, I, if I've asked for it and you're, you're saying no, I want to know why you're saying no. Mm. um and why it's not why it's not important to you and I think fertility is really overlooked in that mm. in that region I think people see it as a lifestyle choice rather than a mm. an issue Lovely. yeah um exactly. which really grinds my gears yeah <laughs> so we're yeah. speaking in July the petition's on about thirty five thousand. we know that this conversation has made it to parliament before because the right mm. to try campaign did get to a hundred thousand that's the aim right to get it to a hundred thousand is that the hope absolutely yeah, yeah. okay yeah just keep it going <laughs> all right that's it and just keep it going I think we've, we've just got to do what we can do and I, I don't think I'll be happy until everybody has equal access in all honesty um but yeah the first hurdle today Exactly. Well, it's fairy steps and it is this huge awareness piece and exactly Mm -hmm. well done. And thank you for sharing. And maybe by the time of us putting this out, we'll be able to add in the show notes what the outcome was. And uh, I hope so. Yeah, we'll make sure. Hopefully it's positive. Now, Kate and I have been talking about this conversation with Amber over the last few weeks, and we couldn't remember whether we'd actually already discussed what Amber just shared because we recorded it a few weeks ago. And we've been talking about Amber a lot, haven't we, on our socials and things like that. Exactly, because she did have a positive outcome to that decision from her CCG. You love the video. Well, I love the video. I mean, we've talked about it already on a different episode and we'll put we'll put a little link to it. It's amazing. It just goes to show the power of just speaking up, doesn't it? Yeah, and so necessary. And isn't it amazing that a woman can actually change a CCG's whole opinion and their priorities so that women can have fair access to IVF. There are a number of, um, well, there's maybe three 
other counties or trust CCGs in the UK that don't have any access at all. Um, Peterborough and Cambridge is one of them, Amber's um, trust. There's um, Basildon and uh, I think Essex. We've got we've got it in the show notes. Yeah, I think also it's Berkshire as well. Um, so that's another one that I don't think Amber mentioned. You know, if you live in those areas, get get kind of campaigning, blaze the trail, follow what Amber did, and see if you can turn things around because it's possible. I think if it's something that you feel you've got the energy for, because don't feel pressured if you don't, because I do know that it's quite a big ask on the one hand when you're trying to get your head around you know what is going on with you with that in mind we wanted to share another episode that we had earlier in the year with Marta Yanza Perez who is the director of embryology at BPAS now BPAS is a very interesting organization who you may also know about is the British Pregnancy Advisory Service and they've been doing a lot more work around fertility and actually had launched BPAS fertility as another kind of point of reference for you And what you're going to hear about um, Marta talking about is how they are going to be launching their not-for-profit fertility care service, hopefully by the end of the year. When we spoke with Marta, the plans were around summertime, but we have checked in with BPAS and it is going to be a bit later um, in the year. So do make sure you're following them. We will put all the details in the show notes. I think you'll find it's a really interesting conversation. So we're now going to welcome Marta Yanta Perez from BPAS Fertility. Marta is the Director of Embryology. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. We'd love to start to hear a bit more about your background um, and a bit more about BPAS. So, so tell us how you kind of went from being an embryologist into this role. I got interested in the BPAS project to develop a not-for-profit evidence-based service basically two years ago when I started having conversations with them. And I already had... Um, realized that there is, uh, in fact, a gap in the market whereby people who cannot access NHS-funded fertility treatment um, are forced to go into the private sector. And some of the prices in there are so high. I knew, and there is evidence now to show that lots of people are missing out because they cannot afford those prices. So I always had the feeling since I moved to the UK, and that was um, in 2002, that, that, that there was a need to help a, a whole lot of people that um, needed to have fertility treatment to try and achieve the family that they dreamed. And I was very interested in the BPAS project for that reason. And I have been working in developing this service since the beginning of last year, so 2020. And we're very much advanced into how develop, we're developing it in spite of the pandemic. And we're quite optimistic that by autumn we should be able to offer a service that is um, not-for-profit, evidence-based, and basically centred on the patient's needs. So based on, you know, what patients um, need in terms of support, information, you know, guidance through this sometimes too long journey that is the fertility journey, as we know. You mentioned, Marta, there about the um, pandemic. And before we talk more about the treatment side of things, can you tell us a bit more about Stop the Clock campaign, which I know came to light because of the impact of the pandemic and how patients were not able to access treatment? Yes, so um, BIPA started this campaign at the end of last year um, because there was a period at the beginning of the pandemic where fertility clinics had to stop providing treatment. And that generated a significant delay in treatment that affected um 
a group of patients and our concern was that some of those patients might reach the age limit um, of NHS funded treatment and what we wanted to do is lobby the government um, to make sure that those those sort of exceptional circumstances were taken into account and we um, launched a petition along with um, other stakeholders like the RCOG, Fertility Network UK, the Association of Clinical Scientists and other organizations just to ask the government to take that into account and we are very happy that um, there's been guidance issued um, together, NHS, HFEA and NICE, um, that recommends that CCGs take that into account and that indeed we have evidence that that's now being done because it's not just the period in which the clinics were closed down, but also thereafter where clinics are working under very sort of strict protocols to minimize um, the transmission of the virus. And so the workload and the number of patients that they can treat has reduced significantly. So we want to ensure that no one is missing out on NHS funded treatment as a result of those delays that are imposed by this pandemic, unfortunately. Marta, we talked about the new service that all of this work has kind of led towards, which you're launching in the autumn to provide this IVF treatment to people. And we'd love to know more about what you found because you were particularly keen to really have these forums running with patients to to, to really get to the bottom of, of what people aren't finding when they're going um, through their treatment. So what, what can you share with us that, that the forum showed you? Um, yeah, so we, um, as you say, we consulted with a lot of stakeholders um, and we did forums with patient support groups and patient representatives. And um, a lot of what came through from those groups is to do with information provision and support throughout treatment and making sure that patients have an in-depth understanding of what the fertility journey means and the decisions that they need to make along the way. Um, and I think that, that there was a lot of evidence coming through from the conversations we had that patients feel like they are faced with um, decisions that they need to make in a rushed way, often without proper understanding of what they're deciding about, and, and that they need the time and the support and the ability to have conversations before they need to make those decisions. So that was one of the main things that um, we gathered, but also what came across quite interestingly is that uh, patients are lacking support at the end of the treatment cycle. If they have a negative pregnancy test, they feel like they, they often dropped nowhere and they need that's when they need more support and follow-up. And that's one of the things that we want to make sure we do. Because what um, patients need to know when they embark in treatment is that there are two possible outcomes at the end of the treatment. One is a positive test and the other is a negative test. And unfortunately, the most likely one is the negative test. So we as professionals, we need to give them tools to be able to cope with either outcome at the end of it and support them thereafter so that, that, that they feel that, you know, our care doesn't end at the pregnancy result, that we're there to support them and to help them make decisions about what to do next. And the other thing was about making sure that there is inclusion in terms of, you know, different ethnic backgrounds, different sexual orientations, but also one of the very important things that came across is making sure that we 
take into the con consideration the needs of the man and treat the man as part of the equation and as patients that are embarking on treatment if they come with a woman and that they have you know similar needs similar anxieties and they those need to be addressed throughout the treatment and a lot of the men told us that they feel forgotten throughout it Oh, yeah, absolutely. Marsha, I just want to go back to something that you said just a few minutes ago, which I found really interesting. And you, when you talked about the fact that patients feel dropped after yeah. their, their treatment is finished and they, they potentially, if it's not been successful, they have a negative um, pregnancy test and there's no support for them. And that's something that I see so frequently. My patients tell me all the time. So it's really interesting that you've picked up on that. What kind of support will you be offering them then at that point? We would make priority to see them as soon as possible to have a conversation. I mean, as soon as they are ready to, of course, you don't want to impose. Yeah. I mean, people move at different speeds and are ready for conversations at different times. But we will offer to have that conversation as soon as people are ready for it. And what we want to make sure is that at that point, we open up the conversation to all sorts of possibilities, which include stopping treatment or considering parenthood in another completely different way. Um, because the other thing that came across is that people often get rushed to start another treatment cycle without yeah. time to replenish batteries emotionally and financially and all sorts of things. So it's it's an occasion to have a sort of very open conversation about, you know, this is what happened. This is the options we have in front of us. We are here to support you as if and when you need us to support you and, and really leave it up to them to come to us with, you know, what their thoughts are and what their needs are at any point. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that so reflects the kind of conversations that I have, especially like on the online and the Instagram community, that point at where implantation has failed and people are sharing that. And then it seems that people do feel like Kate said, and, and you said that word dropped. I hear mm. with the people that I speak to and and in my kind of coaching work, there's a like a check in call after they've tested, which we kind of have a conversation about whether they want or not. And some people say they'd prefer to get back to me. And people do seem to go into hiding from my experience when it has been a negative and so you know and it is really important to gauge that time of whether you follow someone up when they're going to give you bad news or whether you let them come to you and I think it's such an important fine balance that has to be found and it's really good to hear that that's something that's a big focus in in the work that you're doing. Yes exactly I think you just need to go with the wishes of the patient at the end of the line and you know if you can have that conversation and say you know I can call you in two days or do you prefer to call us when you're ready and and this is something you need to tailor depending on the specific person that you have at the other end of the line just to make sure that you support them in the way that they need to be supported at that time which is a very difficult time. And you mentioned Marta the male support were you able to have many men involved in the research in the forums? Yeah so we spoke to um three men that are patient representatives and I think at least one of them runs a, a male specific support group and they were all very uh, similar in their views in that you know they feel quite forgotten they feel that you know a lot of the time they're there to provide a sperm sample and that's the end of it for them and when you think of it when you're treating patients where there is a male partner you know these people are as much involved in the treatment as the woman is of course most of the intervention happens in the woman's body but 
ultimately they, they have the same dream for a child and that child is going to be their legal child and they go through the same up and ups and downs even though they might express them in a different way and sometimes not express them or withdraw but the need for support is very clearly there and the need for specific support for the needs of men is um, is very clear and one of the things that they mentioned is the possibility of having a male counselor which is something that we really will look into because it comes across that some men would actually prefer to speak to a male counselor of which mm. there aren't many but yeah. i think if that's something that might be seen as helpful we will seriously consider that yeah that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And and certainly Natalie and I've had some really interesting chats on the podcast about male fertility and how they feel emotionally and how they feel, you know, very much on the periphery of all this. Yeah. And um, we'll yeah. put the links to, the, to those episodes in the show notes. You also commissioned some research looking into the extent of the postcode lottery in the UK. And for anyone listening who hasn't heard this term before, it refers to how where you live in the UK and what your local CCG have decided with regards to how many rounds you're entitled to a funded IVF. So unfortunately, this really differs, as we know, across the UK, despite the fact that the NICE guidelines have um, recommended that all couples should have access to three. And that's certainly what occurs in Scotland. But in England, it's very, very different. What did your report find out based on that? Well, essentially, what you've just said, that there is huge inequalities across England in um, the funding for fertility treatment and you could live um, three miles from someone else and not be entitled to treatment and the person three miles away has um, three cycles, three full cycles of treatment and we very strongly feel that that's extremely unfair Um, and and what we all know is that the NICE guidelines um, recommend to have three full cycles of treatment because that makes sense um, um, from all perspectives and um, we have seen that of all of the 135 CCGs in England there's only 23 that provide those three full cycles and there's all sorts of restrictions yeah yeah and there's all sorts of restrictions of the ones that provide funded treatment there is lots that only fund one cycle others that restrict age down to 35 years um others that you know don't provide the use of the frozen embryos from the fresh cycles so there's also Marta, we've talked on the podcast before um, about uh, one example of a patient who who lobbied her ccg and they reviewed it and they changed what they were actually doing did you come across any of those types of conversations of 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 patients actually because that's one of the things that fertility network were keen to encourage people to do were to write the letters explaining it and we have had it discussed in parliament and we have seen you know this conversation be taken on board more seriously obviously we're talking in a time where we know lots of resources are stretched now within the nhs but did you hear any of those similar outcomes Yes, I think we have um, been contacted by some patients that have approached their CCGs and that um, have been successful in um, getting some funding. But I think that's the minority of the people. Um, Most people just have to go with the criteria of the CCG and um, 
sort of accept the level of funding that that's provided but there is more and more lobbying and that's one of the things that the people's external affairs team is very successful at doing is communicating to the wider public that you know this is a problem and that people should be writing to the their mps and campaigning for it whether you know and most of these people are people who are affected by the funding so yeah i'm pleased to say that there's more and more people speaking out about it and hopefully that will make a difference at some point because this is one of the objectives that we have that the nhs funding is extended as per nice guidelines and therefore perhaps a service like the one we're setting up wouldn't be as needed as it currently is let's talk just finally about the service because sadly we know that because of what's going on with the ccgs and if you're unfamiliar with that term it means the clinical commissioning group that's the decision that they've made in your area we know that more people are having to self-fund because there are such discrepancies within the ccgs but also we know that the price that people have to pay varies so much and i know that this is part of the motivation for your not-for-profit service so tell us a bit about it because the cost element i mean i've got coaching clients who talk about you know they've got the monthly spend going out so much of it is on treatment and they just don't know when it's going to stop and you know it's just heartbreaking when they when they look at the the sums and the figures that I've talked with people that have spent so much money on this and sometimes they've had the successful outcome but you know more often than not they haven't. So what we are wanting to achieve is basically run a service where there is no profit so we just want to cover our running costs and we believe that that will allow us to undercut all of the fertility providers um, that are out there in the private sector. And, and that hopefully will reach out to all, you know, a, a significant proportion of the patients that cannot afford uh, private treatment. Um, and what we also want to do is to have a very clear and transparent pricing structure, because what's um, very difficult for patients is to compare the costs of treatment between providers Um, Because often, and that's come across from the CMA consultation and some work that we've done along with them, often they get given a price to start with, but then there are additional items that get added along the way. And once you've embarked on treatment, it is impossible to sort of step out and say, no, I'm not having this scan because, you know, it's necessary. So one of the things we want to do is give patients a prize that includes the whole cycle, whether it's IVF or ICSI, whether they have embryo freezing or not, we will include that all in the same package so that when they start treatment, they know exactly how much that's going to cost them. And I think that will give people a bit more sense of control throughout the treatment. So having the information about the treatment they're undertaking, but also the financial implications of that treatment cycle, we feel that that's important and that will empower people throughout this journey. Absolutely, yep, so I mean, important. There, yeah, there are so many hidden costs at the moment, so yes. you know that women and couples don't expect, and then it it comes as a bit of a shock. Am I right in thinking, Marta, that you're going to be based in London? And if so, are you then hoping to increase access across the country so that it's going to be easier for uh, women and couples to to actually find you more local to them? With is that the vision? The idea is that we will have a hub in London where the IVF lab will be, and that's where you create the embryos and culture them and store them and so on. Um, But we want to have satellite units elsewhere in England. We will start with two, one in Peterborough and one in Swindon. The reason for those locations is that um, NHS provision there is 
very little, if any. So the idea is these guys will have the preparation for the treatment, the consultations, the consents, the stimulation scans, and so on. And they will only come down to London for the egg collection and the embryo transfer. But the whole treatment will be managed in the satellites all the way through um, the end of the cycle and thereafter. So, yeah, that's the plan. We'll start small and see how we go. And, uh, you know, the idea is to grow further if we can, but we just Fantastic. need to take one step at a time. Well, I just think it's so good to hear how things are changing. And I think anybody listening who might have had treatment, experience of treatment, or if you're listening and, you know, you're thinking about starting treatment, knowing that people that have been through treatment have been listened to and a service is being created around your needs is so just reassuring. And I think as a former patient, you know, hearing that this type of service is going to exist, it's music to my ears. And I wish you the best of luck with it, Marty, because mm. I think it's so considered what you've put together. And like you say, you're seeking out places where it's needed and that whole cost aspect that we know is so huge for people. Hopefully people can feel more confidence, you know, when they're going into treatment, that it is going to be more transparent and that they're not being, they're not being ripped off. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you guys for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be able to discuss that and hopefully we'll be able to help people who are not, not getting the help that they need. That's our idea. So as we said at the start, we are waiting to confirm when that fertility service will will be available for you. But the fact that there is such a thing as a not-for-profit fertility care service, I think, is really interesting. And I think that it will hopefully pave the way for more organisations to do similar things. Let's hope to make it better for more people to get access when we are hearing more and more people having to self-fund. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this could be a game changer, actually, couldn't it? It could really change things for so many and improve access and that's what it's all about it's improving the access so that more women can afford to have IVF and that's crucial as we mentioned you know initially it's going to be in London which does limit access however in time hopefully it's going to increase and be in different parts of the UK so it'll be yeah watch your space and follow on the show notes you can also get in touch with us I'm at Fertility Puddy and I'm at Your Fertility Journey And we love hearing from you. We love knowing what you think. You've been brilliant at getting in touch, leaving us some reviews. There is a link on how to view this podcast uh, in the um, bio on Instagram. Or you can just go to whichever podcast that you listen to in. Apple is the easiest, really, to leave a review. And it would be great to hear from you. But before we let you go, we're just going to have one more thought from our resident expert, Dr. James Nicopoulos. Ask the expert. 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 We've got one here about... About cycling, James, we have male factor, low scores on all fronts, but especially morphology. Is there any proof that my husband should stop cycling? Uh, he used to cycle to work an hour per day periodically. He wasn't consistently doing it the whole time. Um, we've been trying to conceive, but he's now stopped. I may be pinning too much hope on it, but otherwise he's fit as a fiddle, never smoked. So the results were a major shock. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. And it's one of those that is really impossible to answer with any level of certainty or evidence um you know my, my feeling is unless your uh, lance armstrong i suppose you've got other problems if you're lance armstrong it's not just a cycling <laughs> but um it, unless, unless you're cycling to that sort of level and distance it's unlikely that you're going to get a raise in testicular temperature it's, gonna, it's not impossible but you know it, it, i don't think it's going to be the key to stop that uh, and it's like all of these things it's like a cup of coffee or a glass of wine twice a week If it's going to make you feel better and eliminate it as a variable in your peace of mind, do it. 
adapt is going to be the key. Though. Let us know any questions you've got for our expert. You can email info at fertilitypodcast.com. Thank you as always for your support. And until the next time, 